This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Tonight we'll talk about water. Climate disruption is making us feel rather responsible for water and quite anxious about it. I talked to Brittany App in California about her film, Where There Once Was Water, and she says, What are we flying to Mars and we can't provide clean running water to all of the humans on this planet? Yeah. It's crazy. She visited First Nations people in California who speak for the salmon, and they found a deep connection with New Zealand, where Maori ceremonies are protecting the rivers. Then we'll hear from Bruce Shillingsworth about our darling Barker River. He was speaking in an old reservoir which used to be filled with water in Paddington. It now creates a haunting effect. It looks like a cathedral in there. And he was like a prophet, really. Bruce, he was speaking to a a crowd who'd come to a session called Requiem. It was a curated week of all kind of art events. And he's an artist. And he speaks in this prophetic way about what's happening to the Barker River and how we need to reconnect it, to reconnect with the spirit of the place and make a personal connection as Aboriginal people all have totems and kinship connection with nature. only way to do the healing is come together and getting out there in that environment. Uh, Bruce told us about the Yama Nyana Barker corroboree tour, which will be on again at the end of this year, and I'll link that to our show notes at Radio 3CR. Lastly, from the Reset 21 forums at the Sustainable Living Festival, we'll hear from Kado Muir, who is the chair of the National Native Title Council. He talks about Jukan Gorge, never again, and how we need Indigenous people, more than ever, to be far more prominent in managing the land for climate repair. This echoes both what Bruce says and what Brittany App says about indigenous science, which is clothed in ceremony and ritual, but has a deep rightness about it. First off, Brittany App. You can only suck so much water out of the ground before it is genuinely all gone. And in a lot of parts of California, it is gone. It's, it's done. There is no more groundwater to tap into. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. Brittany App has a film in this year's Transition Film Festival, which is called Where There Once Was Water. It's about 21st century solutions to the water crisis that she observes in California. And it's also about healing our relationship with water. So hello, Brittany. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. Thank you so much. Tell us why you went to Standing Rock in North Dakota, which is on a lot of our minds now, as we've heard about the President Biden cancelling the permit for that pipeline, um, Keystone Pipeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the the big action 
at the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation was back in 2016. And so I was deep within production of my film at that time. And I hadn't quite landed on it, you know, for sure being a story only about California. And that was such a big story at the time around water and around indigenous rights and, um, it just, I felt really called to go there and I, but I wanted to make sure I went for the right reason as a non-native person. I wanted to go as an ally. I wanted to go as a storyteller and I wanted to try and bring that story back to my community. And if it fit to incorporate it into the film somehow, um, because I think the, really the most important voices in the conversation around water and the conversation around healing our relationship with the land and the water is is indigenous voices. And if we took more time to listen, I think there's a lot we could learn there. Yeah, well, next month, um, there there's many spiritual and global um, religious groups are starting a year of global action. And they say it's the 11th hour, really, for climate actions, that they're having it on the 11th of March at the 11th hour. And that starts a wow. year of action. And indigenous water protectors in Australia are suddenly being taken more seriously. I notice we've had terrible fish kills, you know, the fish just turning up turning up in the water, millions of them, and people have really woken up and started to ask and invite Aboriginal speakers onto different programs. So I think they're being taken more seriously. But they are telling us, they've always been telling us, that everything is connected and our carbon emissions from the land sector are intensifying these droughts and floods that everyone's experiencing. And the way we've turned water into a commodity is a sacrilege to them. So what is the new perspective that you are inviting non-Indigenous people to sort of adopt? You know, you're telling us this is your chance to turn around. Water's the chance, the key. But what is it, the new perspective? Um, I like to think of this film as a song for the sacred in all of us. Uh, you know, we, we look like human beings, but really we are walking around on, on two legs in a body that's made of mostly water. And so if we don't, if we don't acknowledge how important that relationship is, we're, we're never going to solve any of our problems. And so what I have learned over the course of trying to tell the story of water, trying to, you know, be a voice for the water in a way, is that these ancient teachings that speak to the sacredness of water and the, the importance of a personal relationship with water, that's, that's really what it all comes down to. And that's something that each of us can do right in our own life is yeah. create this personal relationship with water and then learn more about the waters where we live, the waters in our own bodies, but the waters in our watersheds. And um, we can each choose how to get involved in that in our own, in our own way. That's interesting. Well, in your film where there once was water, you speak to a um, first nation person called Chief Kayleen Sisk about salmon and I was fascinated because I read the show notes and then they go to New Zealand those people yes <laughs> would yes. you like to tell us their story which was fascinating yeah. about salmon I'll, I'll do my best to just give you a cliff notes yeah. of her story because yeah. it would be much better for her to tell her own exactly, story but but... the worldwide relationship there is pretty amazing so Chief Kayleen Sisk is of the Winnemum Wintu tribe in Northern California and she has been advocating for years and years to bring the salmon back to the McLeod River, which is where her people have always lived. And the salmon runs on that river are almost 
if not completely gone at this point, specifically because of the raising of Shasta Dam. Um, but then all of the other dams along the way have not done anything to help the salmon and their traditional um, passages. And so way back, there was a naturalist named Livingston Stone who started the first fish hatchery on that river system. And at, at first, the Winnemug tribe, tribe was really not happy about the situation. But in the long term, that hatchery ended up sending out eggs all over the world. And so some of those eggs ended up in this river you're speaking of in New Zealand. And so the DNA of the McLeod River Chinook salmon (laughs) is now also in New Zealand. And it's the only place where her salmon also live. And so (laughs) the Winamamwintu tribe traveled to a Maori tribe in New Zealand and held a four-day ceremony around the salmon to start the journey of trying to bring them back home to their watershed. And I'm getting goosebumps just thinking yeah. about it. And they, and they did make a film about it. It's called Dancing Salmon Home. That's So right. I would recommend that folks watch that if they're interested. Oh, I'll link it to the program. podcast. Yeah, I saw that little film and it just really moved me because our Indigenous speaker later on this program, Bruce Shillingsworth, he wants us to go and he's inviting people on tours, you know, um, non-Indigenous people to come on tours to see the Darling River, which is called the Barker River for him, and to do these rituals and corroborees, you know, ceremonies, which, you know, to me, it's foreign to me, but I'm willing now. I think I'm receptive to it. And I wonder if a lot of other people aren't suddenly kind of receptive to that. And the yeah. rituals at least give us this relationship, as you say, a personal relationship to a place, whereas most people are yeah. quite deracinated in the city they just don't feel but they belong to a place so yeah it's been a huge honor and it is a huge honor to be invited to any um any ceremony like that and the the few that I've been to I just you know I'm so grateful to the native people who have invited me into that really sacred space and it's powerful It's, it's powerful and it's we have a lot, again, you know, we just have a lot to learn and yeah. I think it's time and maybe everything had to fall apart for us to be willing to listen. And I mm. hope it doesn't have to fall apart any further, but it might, mm. you know. Talk about the 11th hour. Honestly, yeah. I think we're all we feeling might be that. the 11th and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a bit more about harder stuff. Industrial scale agriculture, crops like cotton and rice are very, well, many people say they're quite unsuited to Australian conditions. We're the driest continent in the world already, and we're rapidly making it drier. And now that our rainfall patterns are changing, we need to know what are other people doing? What are Californian farmers and water allocators doing to adapt to this? Well, I mean, I think in a similar manner, we we are also in big trouble here in California. We cannot keep, we, you know, most farmers uh, on on a large scale are still doing things the way they have been and we as a as a people cannot keep living the ways that we have been and depending on our food systems to operate as they have been we're just going to run out at some point you can only suck so much water out of the ground before it is genuinely all gone and in a lot of parts of california it is gone it's it's done there is no more groundwater to tap into and so yeah, what I found in the film is that really the the most hopeful answer to growing more food with less water is to also focus on growing soil. So if the soil is alive, it can hold on to every drop of water that falls on it. 
But if the soil is not alive, it's just dirt. And that's what we see blowing away in the wind. And dirt needs more water inputs. Dirt needs fertilizer. Dirt needs all of the things added to it because it's not alive. So I think our greatest hope moving forward in agriculture is to grow crops that are appropriate for where they're being grown, to grow them with less water by using technology, whether that's drip irrigation or other, and then to focus as much as we are in growing food to also grow the soil. And that's an amazing world on its own. I mean, you could make 10 different films just about soil. I had no idea. So that's been an exciting thing to learn about. Oh, fantastic. Well, look, 70% of fresh water goes to make food. And as you said, the groundwater is disappearing. It is here too. And we're trying to protect our great artesian basin from gas drilling at the moment. You know, great artesian basin, it's a wonder of the world. But, you know, it could disappear too or be polluted. And you say we're digging our own grave, really. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth. And the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning. Well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare, spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 And I agree with that. I'm proud of the platform that community radio gives to all sorts of voices, normally locked out of the mainstream. So please subscribe to 3CR from as little as $35 per year. It will give you a sense of belonging to something really brave, and it gives us a signal that you care. Now back to the filmmaker, Brittany App in California. What solutions did you find among the farmers, just a bit more specifically about those farmers you visited, you have a lot of people in your film. I was most fascinated by the folks who are doing regenerative agriculture, and that is becoming, thankfully, a little bit more of a buzzword right now. And it and it means exactly what it sounds like it means, that we are regenerating the soil, regenerating the water cycles um, building life as we grow food. So there's two great examples. And um, one is a farm way up in the northern tip of California called the Jefferson Center. And they are a Savory Institute hub farm. So the Savory Institute is a global network that you probably know about. Yeah. Um, and um, they have hub farms all over the world. And they are specifically focusing on mimicking the behaviors of ancient grazing herds with modern day livestock. And so the, the cows or the sheep come through and they 
they trample a bit and they eat a bit and they poop and pee a bit. And then you move them on to the next pasture before they overgraze. And so that really stimulates the soil in all the right ways. And by managing cattle holistically, you're focusing then on growing the soil and healing water cycles. And another inspiring um, agricultural practice is called biodynamics. And that involves this idea of holistic plant grazing as part of an even broader network of solutions um, that, that really focuses on regenerating the farm uh, making everything that you need on the farm there on the farm. So yeah. the fertilizer comes from your herd of sheep and um, it's, it's all just really inspiring and it's already being done and it already works. And yeah. so all of that on a broader scale would do a lot of good for all of us, I think. Okay. Well, in Australia, there's a big battle. We, we're focusing on water tonight, listeners, even though our program is climate action, but Water is a big part of that. People don't seem to realize that. And there's a big battle here between water for agriculture and water for the environment. And guess which one loses out each time. Tell us about wetland restoration. I loved reading about that, and I'd like to see it on the film. You you met someone called Dino Cortopassi and something about the dancing cranes. Oh, my goodness. So that actually was com- that was a project that came completely after the film and, yeah. and because of the film, which was a really beautiful gift. And I've been working as a professional photographer for a couple of decades now, which is what led me into wanting to try and tell the story of water through film. Yeah. And then after having done that, I, some of the folks I met through the film connected me with Dino. And he's a farmer in the Delta in California, and he primarily grows rice. And he grows other crops too, but he has a commercial um, scale farming operation. And he has uh, chosen to take 750 acres of his farm and turn it into a four seasons wetland, specifically for the migrating waterfowl that come right through his area. But then he also on his rice fields leaves 5% of his crop unharvested specifically as food for the sandhill cranes (laughs) and i got to make a short film for him about his whole operation there but then i also got to spend about uh i got to go up for a week visit three times throughout the winter just to photograph (laughs) birds and oh my gosh the sandhill cranes are amazing they're completely out of this world they're giant birds they're majestic and they dance and they 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 play with each other and they have a pretty predictable pattern. So if you're in the right spot at sunset, they'll all show up. And if you're in the right spot at sunrise, same thing. And it's yes. like it's like watching dinosaurs. I mean, it is just <laughs> and Dino loves them. He he's so passionate about the birds and he's able to make a profit as a farmer, restore wetlands and provide food and habitat for migrating waterfowl all at the same time. So he really is an inspiring um, person to look to as far as, you know, how how can we do this? How can we grow food and also provide ecosystem benefits? Because That's, we can. Yeah. We've, got yeah. to see the, we've got to see these models, and I think film is the best way to show us. Well, lastly, there are many people, many people living without water, not just fish and, um, you know, live, uh, wildlife, but 
actual people living without water, and it's not just in India or you might say poor countries, it is in Australia. And I learned from your film that it's also in your country. And like the Navajo Nation, people are having to truck in water, just like people in the western part of New South Wales are trucking in water and when there's a drought. Well, maybe all the time, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So is climate change part of this? I believe so. I mean, in some of these places, unfortunately, like in Navajo Nation, a woman I talked to there who's the water truck driver and, and delivers fresh water to people, she she never had running water growing up. She never had electricity, and neither did her parents, and neither do most of the people that she knows. And that's not because of climate change. Mm. That's, that's because of us not really being great to one another, to be honest. I mean, um, Navajo Nation even though it has groundwater in some places that's accessible, a lot of it is tainted by um, uranium from the uranium mines that were there. And so that's another piece of being um, non-native people on lands that have not been ours for very long is, is we need to look at all of the uncomfortable history. And if we find that our native people are living without water, which is the case here, um, let's do everything we can to right that wrong, because that's mm. a big wrong. And you can't do life without water. Yeah. And like you said, you know, I first became aware of water access issues when I traveled um, to Ghana and uh, India and some places in the Amazon and was like, wow, look at these mm. little girls carrying water all day, especially in in some of the African countries. Um, it just broke my heart. And that's what got me interested in water activism to begin with years and years ago. And then when I found out it was happening right here in the United States, I was dumbfounded. I had no idea. And I just was, um, I was honored to be a part of a, a report called Close the Water Gap. And it's specifically about, um, it's a qualitative analysis of how many Americans are still living without clean drinking water. There's 2 million people in the United States that don't have access to clean running water at home. And a large percentage of them are on Navajo Nation. Um, there's a hot spot in Appalachia. There's a hot spot here in California in the Central Valley. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy yeah. that we can, what are we flying to Mars and we can't provide clean running water to all of the humans on this planet? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. and as climate change intensifies to bring it back to your original question, mm. of course, this will get worse. Because some of it is groundwater that's drying up and then what is left has more pollutants from agriculture or other, um, or even just natural pollutants like arsenic is a, is a natural pollutant of groundwater. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's unfortunately, <laughs> we've got some work to do. I hope that we can do it and I hope that it's not too late. Yeah. And I, I like to focus on hope. I loved on your website there was connections to lots of community groups. So you're well connected. You're not just a photographer who's just looking at the the aesthetic of it. You are actually connected to community groups. I can see that because there are a lot of groups, as there are in Australia, trying to – it's shameful, really, trying to have water tanks in remote areas and access to water. You know, it's really terrible that that has not been provided. And increasingly, it's people are being left behind. But – 
but you are connected to the people who are doing something about it. So I think that gives your, your film an added sort of seriousness. Yeah, I hope the film inspires folks to think a little bit more about their water, to have a relationship with water, and just to, to be a part of the story that we want to write. Okay, so the film, listeners, is Where There Once Was Water, and you can see it at the Transitions Film Festival. We've been talking to the, the, the filmmaker, Brittany App in California. Thanks, Brittany. Thank you so much, Vivian. Bruce Shillingsworth here, and I just want him to speak to an idea that he explained to a meeting at the reservoir about kinship and totems and how in fact preserving the rivers and preserving the land preserving our climate really depends on us having some sort of relationship with it so just you know this may be a foreign idea to a lot of people can you explain what it means to you first well a lot of people don't understand that you know first nation people have been here for over 80 plus thousand years or even more but we had a connection to the land and we had a land that sustained us so mother earth that sustained us for many years the practices and the way we did things, our laws and our beliefs connected to us, to, connected to the country where we live and to our land. As you see, there's over 500 different nations right across Australia. They spoke over 260 plus different languages. So what connected us all? Even though we were different, we were different nations, but we were connected to the totems and through our system, through our song lines, through our dance, through our music. If we go right back to the beginning of time, uh, the first sunrise, uh, when we were first created, we were given the laws from the Great Spirit by Emmy. Uh, we call it God, God now. So we were passed down to us. And he was given us a totem system to, to actually preserve and sustain our environment. So if my totem was the emu, my responsibility weren't allowed to kill the emu or weren't allowed to heat the emu. So my sole responsibility was make sure that animals ex- still exist and, and stay alive. And then every person, every individual, every nation... Um, would have had a totem. So so you'll have the koala, you'll have the goanna, you'll have all different living creatures. So we all had a responsibility of looking after those animals in the environment, every living thing. So I think that was what, what non-Indigenous people doesn't understand. And that's why they don't realise that the land, the land rights, when we fight for land, not just about land. It's about the old survival of our culture and our survival of all people on this planet is the survival of our native animals and our native fauna and fauna. Yeah. Well, you took people on that corroboree tour uh, the year before last, and that was a real initiation for a lot of people, wasn't it? It was their chance to talk to real elders, to sit on the river banks and hear for the first time what it really means, you know. And I think your children and, and increasingly Aboriginal children are getting to, in touch again with this knowledge and these rituals and these sort of sense, deep sense of the land. I think that's something a lot of people would welcome now, a lot of non-Indigenous people. How can, how can they do it? Well, look, I call it a journey. Yeah. We're all on a journey now. The 2009 in Corroboree was a great, it was a success. I mean, 30, you know, we had 30 in the convoy. We had 300 in the convoy. We had about five or 600 people on the river each night. But listening to the, to the, to the voices of those people that haven't, we haven't heard, um, listening to their concern, and I think it's the way we do things is, is contribute to not just healing our suffering here, it's to healing our environment too as well, the Mother Earth. 
And I think First Nation people need to get back to the old practices, the way of doing things. I mean, our people have come together on those rivers for thousands and thousands of years. It's about singing the land, it's about singing the spirit, it's about the healing process. And I believe in this country, you know, First Nation people not only need to be healed, but non-Indigenous people as well. It's a two-way process. The only way to do the healing is come together and getting out there in that environment and, and just actually see what's happening and our concerns and trying to fix it and try to come together and, and do it the way that our people have done it and then we you know, use the modern way of doing things with technology and other things. Melbourne people will remember a film that was the, the Transition Film Festival about the Darling Barker River and there's you standing in this empty river. Absolutely huge river, huge side, big banks and no water in it. What's it like now? Well, uh, you look at uh, the last 10 to 15 years, I mean, our, water, our rivers had no water in it. But look, over the last Christmas break, look, when we finished the corroboree in 2019, when we finished down in Menindee, and this is true, there were raindrops. On the last night of our corroboree in Menindee, rain fell from the, from the open sky. There was no rain clouds, no nothing. And that was a promise. And then a month later, directly a month later, the storms right across the country, right across the country. And the old people said, well, it's, it wasn't for, it's before the corroboree. You know, the gathering of the people, it was the singing of, singing of the land, singing of the ring, singing of the environment, all that, bringing it back, you know, talking to the spirit, bringing back the old way of doing things. And look, over the last Christmas break, I was out at Bawaran over the Christmas break with three lots of rise in the river, so the rivers didn't go empty. Now we're getting water down in Menindee Lakes, down Wilcannia, going downstream now. So look, we hope that the, the flow in the river stays at a certain level so we can be able to you know, feed our environment yeah. and, and bring life back to, our, to the animals and to the environment. But look, the river's looking healthy at the moment. Um, still, we still have problem with a lot of the you know, big agri- still pumping the water. Um, the water's not getting over to our floodplains. It's, it's, it's not getting to the top of the banks of the river. It's only going halfway. We need that water to go over the banks, you know, to feed those, fill the land for the animals too as well. We look at our, we need our billabongs filled, you know, our little creeks, because that's where our fish spawn, they breed. Um, they're not getting out there to breed. So what we need to do is we need to stop the pumping for a while, stop the taking of the water, and just let the river run naturally yeah. and let it flow. In the past, these practices of rainmaking, you said when they built Warragamba Dam just outside Sydney that there were people who came who were the experts in that. Well, look, my, my, mob, my father's people are the Murawari people, and they were known as the rainmakers. Uh, every, you know, they were put in certain areas across Australia for a specific reason. They were the clever people. They were magic. Where they performed, it rained. They came down near the Warragamba. They danced for a week, and then it rained for a month. It filled Warragamba. So those are the things and the practices that we need to get back to. And we've got descendants of those rainmakers. I'm one of them. So, look, we need to get back to that, and we need to start bringing that natural water cycle, bringing all that nature back the way it was. And I think First Nation people's got the answer. And I believe that non-Indigenous people need to come on a journey. They need to start to support us too as well. You know, so we all can be, you know, everyone needs water. Water's life. We can't live without our natural resources. But look, we need to protect Mother Earth, make sure our rivers, our, our waterways, our oceans, all that need to be protected. Thank you very much. That's Bruce Shillingsworth. He's quite a famous artist in Sydney, but also from the Darling Barker re- region is his region. Thanks, Bruce. Please become a subscriber from as little as $35 a year. 3CR is a wonderful station to belong to from my point of view and all our team. We all really feel supported there. And by subscribing, you belong to that larger 
community as well. It's a very worthwhile thing to support, so please subscribe. Now we go back to Bruce Shillingsworth in the Paddington Reservoir talking about water. I've got a piece of music we call The Spirit of the Land is Crying Out. We hear the humming in our ears of the, of the animals and the birds and the fish in those rivers are now starting to cry. I want you to listen to it. I want you to close your eyes and listen to the animals. So I'd like everyone to close their eyes. Shillingsworth playing the didgeridoo he called the song The Spirit of the Land is Crying Out Now we're going to a talk he gave inside an old reservoir in Paddington It's a haunting talk at an art event called Requiem, curated by Janet Lawrence Bruce is an artist but he's also a teacher who wants us to come on a journey with him like Brittany App, he says we need to make a personal connection to the rivers and animals whose habitat we are destroying as if we don't know it's alive. We need to feel kinship. My name's Bruce Shillingsworth. I'm a Murawari budgety man. Murawari is, is my father's nation and budgety is my mother's nation. And I want to tell you a story about my mother too as well in the conversation. We are here because we are here for a specific reason. We look around and our environment, our world, is slowly falling apart. The destructions and the devastation of Mother Earth is slowly dying. We are now the caretakers, we are now the protectors of the Earth and the environment. You are not here because you want to be here. You are here because you've been called here. The spirits of the land is touching the hearts of non-Indigenous people, is also touching the hearts of of Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people. I've just scared you, didn't I? You're all gone silent. (laughs) Look, I'm here to talk about the water, why water is so important. I'm from a little town called Bawarana, where the Darling River starts. The Darling River runs into the Murray, 
The Murray-Darling is Australia's third biggest river. Now it's dead. The Murray-Darling is now called the Barker. The Barker is for, uh, a name for river. It's from the Barkindji language called the river or water. It runs through the four states, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. How in the hell in the last 250 years have our rivers gone dead, completely empty? What have we done? What have we done? What have our leaders have done? I talk in frustration because I've experienced it. I've lived it. Going back to my mother's story, my mother was born on the edge of the desert. She was born on the Dukpari River, way out the back of Burke, far western northern New South Wales. Mum was born on the river, naturally just like her people did for thousands and thousands of years. Mum ain't got a birth certificate, so we don't know her age. We calculate Mum to be about 100 now. Mum's still alive. She's still healthy, she's fit, she cleans, she cooks, she hunts, she does all that. Why? Why is she so healthy? Because she lived off the natural environment. Mum was born on the river, she camped on the river, she lived on the river, she relied on the river. 2019, I took my mum on the Darling River back on the other side of Burke. My mother said she'd never seen the river in that condition in her lifetime. In her lifetime. That's nearly a hundred years. Mum raised us on the river. We lived off the river creatures, the fish, the yellow belly, guyu we call him, the guyu. Mum educated us along the river about life and how we were connected to country. Little do you know it, everyone, we are connected to Mother Earth. Traditionally, First Nation people were connected through their totem system. The totems were the living creature, a living species. If my totem was the emu, my responsibility were not to kill the emu, not to eat the emu, but make sure the emu stay alive and exist. We live in a great circle of life. Every living thing live in a chain that we all need survival and the survival of each, each other. The bees are so important, they pollinate the plant that gives us food. Why are we destroying the habitats of our animals? Why are we clearing the land? Going back to the river. 40% of our First Nation people live along the Murray-Darling. How do you think we feel? I had the opportunity to sit on the dry riverbed in the last couple of years. I started to fight for my rivers when I seen the devastation of our rivers. I sat on the riverbank in Bawaran and realised that there's something going on, there's something drastically wrong. Let's talk about what's gone wrong. How do we bring back those long-necked turtles? How do we bring back the 50-year-old cods? How do we bring back the freshwater mussels, the river creatures, the aquatic life? How do we bring back the animals to our rivers again when the river's dead? 
people. If we got a dead river, we got a dead community. If we got a sick river, we got a sick community. Everyone suffers. First Nation people are feeling the brunt of what's happening. The taking of water from our rivers, the over-extraction, the big agriculture, the big dams are pumping our rivers dry. 60-70% of our rivers, the water in our rivers is owned by overseas company. Why are they controlling our waters? Who gives them the right to sell our water or to control our waters and our rivers and our waterways? Spirit is calling us together. It's bringing us together for a reason. Hear the voice of Mother Earth. It's time to listen. It's time to stand up. It's time to fight for our natural resources and our natural environment. People, it's not about any individual. It's not about any particular group. It's about us. It's about us. It's about our survival as human beings on this planet. No matter where you are and where you come from. The water issue, the rivers, the problem right across the world. The big corporates are now controlling the land and the rivers. Mining, fracking, the clearing of our land, are polluting our waters and are destroying our rivers. Fracking, when they start fracking, it'll destroy the underwater basin. Those communities are now along the Murray-Darling, the Barker, are now relying on bore water. They're pumping water from underground, the great artesian basin. People, how long has that going to last? If a darning go ahead up the top of Queensland, it'll kill the underwater basin and the water system that runs right down through my country and through our country of Australia. I'm not here the bullshit. I'm not here to tell you lies. I'm here to tell you the truth. I had a couple of phone calls last night to the people in Menindi and Wilkenya. The people in Wilkenya said there's no water been in this system for 10 to 12 years in the rivers. The lakes have gone dry. If they don't get water in the next 12 months, those communities will disappear. Let me tell you something. Down in Wentworth, there's a huge pipe that runs to Broken Hill, a water pipe that takes out megalitres of water. It's not going to the community, it's going to the mines. That's what pumped them in the lakes dry. Our communities are becoming sick. My elders in our communities are now suffering with kidney disease and are on dialysis. There's an high rate of suicide right across the land. Non-Indigenous people and First Nation people. Farmers are struggling and suffering, small farmers, because of the greed and the corporates and capitalism in this country. How do we stop big business, big corporates from controlling our rivers? Look up north to the dams at Cubby Station. They got dams that hold more water than the Sydney Harbour. Why are they allowed to do that? Stopping the flow of the water to our country. 
There's been lots of inquiries, after inquiries, after inquiries. Letters to my Prime Minister and to the leaders of this country and nothing's been done. Our representatives out there are not representing us. They're representing whose interest? Big business. Big corporate interest. They don't give a shit about our community. They don't give a shit about First Nation people that lives along the river. That have lived there for thousands and thousands of years. Who has a connection to the land and the environment. Our stories go back to the beginning of time from the first sunrise. We need to start listening to First Nation people. First Nation people need a voice. First Nation people needs to be the decision-making of the rivers and the waterways on our land and our country. It's our river. Yamaganabaka, Karabri Festival, this year we want to see everyone on it. Yama means welcome. Ngana, in my mother's language, meaning ours. Baka in the Barkindji language meaning river. Welcome to our river. I want to see you all wearing a t-shirt <laughs> next year or this year. Right. Help support the cause. Our community needs filter water filters. We need tanks to store the rainwater when it comes. Um, our community councils need proper filtration system that will filter the water to give us proper drinking water. There's lots of things need to be done in our community. Let's work together and try to fix it. Yamaganabaka fundraising will support those communities in those areas. We'll put programs and projects into those communities that will help support them and help them stay alive. We want to help educate our young children. This year is going to be focused on youth and young children. So we want to get them out there because we believe that our young kids are our next leaders. They're the ones that are going to change the world. So we want youth and young people out on the rivers. Kato Muir is Deputy Chair of the National Native Title Council and an anthropologist and archaeologist with many years of experience working in Aboriginal heritage, language preservation and maintenance, and on ecological, educational and native title research issues. Cato is a community-based cultural heritage and environmental activist, and like me, he's a director of Original Power. Cato's focus today is on how native title might work for conservation and climate. Cato Muir. Need to un unmute, Cato. Yes, I have just unmuted. That seems to be the novelty of the age is the capacity to mute voices these days. I'm in my hometown of Leonora. Uh, we are out in the deserts of Western Australia in the Goldfields region, but on the edge of the, the Goldfields region and the desert. So I'll acknowledge my fellow countrymen. Uh, mostly we identify as Wanka, the people, but we also have uh, Madu and a lot of us identify as Ngani that are uh, Yanango, Anango, the whole range of other uh, names and identities. But essentially, we come from the Western Desert Cultural Block. 
in our Western Desert culture, we are perhaps the last of the um, parts of Australia to be colonised and settled by uh, the British and uh, subsequently the, uh, the Australian settlers. My grandparents uh, walked out of the bush along with my mother. We have lived and occupied that space in the frontier zone, I suppose, the transition between the settler society and the traditional Aboriginal societies. And in the context of this discussion, I think it's worth noting that we have completely different worldviews. The settler society is built on the foundation of a uh, the Abrahamic religions and the, um, the views that God created the heavens and the earth and all of that. The position of humans or mankind in that uh, space is uh, quite different to how myself, my countrymen and other Indigenous peoples view our relationship and our role with the environment. Where I come from, we look at the Dzogurba as the source or origin of creation and the actions of our ancestral spirit beings who have undertaken their, you know, lived out their lives, performed their deeds, established the, uh, the laws and the customs and the traditions. And in so doing, we have formed a relationship with the environment and other creatures in it on kinship basis. So I am kin with, you know, species. And I think a lot of other Indigenous peoples and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in particular share these kinship relationships with the environment, with uh, other species, and even with uh, forces and actions of the environment. One of the biggest breakthroughs, I think, in reasoning or understanding is that when the Aboriginal people suffered the genocide, the massacres and the removal from country, our role as the sustainer and the maintainer of the balance disappeared. And our custodianship or stewardship also was diminished. And thereby, a lot of our family, our kin in this, in the animal world have disappeared. We were no longer able to maintain the dhabia, the rituals, the ceremonies to maintain the flow of those energies. In the post-Mabo uh, native title era, the First Nations of Australia and our various cultural um, dimensions are coming back to play an active role in maintaining and sustaining our environments. So as you, as was mentioned earlier, 50% of the Australian landmass, and I would suggest even beyond that to one date where most of the Australian landmass will have some form of either ownership, management or consultation rights of Indigenous peoples. The various impacts, the bushfires, which from an Aboriginal cultural perspective, a bushfire is our friend. And bushfires are a useful tool to sustain the environment, maintain uh, the resources and keep things tidy. Sadly, in uh, the post-settler era or the post-colonial era into the settler era, uh, our role in bushfires had uh, reduced and therefore uh, lands were not managed and supported the way they could otherwise have been managed. That's just one example. I could go into also... <coughs> The, the drought, we have a very highly developed science which is dressed in spirituality, uh, rituals, performance, art, songs, dance, 
connections to country, each of which operates on the vibrational level of uh, being able to bring rains. And I'm looking at Nolan over there for a lot of us people in the desert. We have these uh, relationships with his people, uh, the Bardi people and others up in the North Kimberley coast who, uh, without whom we would not get rain out in our part of the world. And this may sound quite esoteric to listeners and everyone else, but what I am wanting to do in my presentation here is to ground our awareness in that cultural and spiritual dimension and look at that as the basis on which many First Nations people interact with the rest of the world. Uh, we have a authority and a connection that goes back many thousands of years, if you're counting the clock, or in our worldview, back to the Jogurba, back to creation. In that space, uh, incidents like Jukan Gorge, and I should also say the Apache people at Oak Flats in the United States and other First Nations peoples around the world, we struggle to maintain these responsibilities and these, uh, these support for all living forms in an environment where there is an economy built around extraction, exploitation, marginalisation and lies on the account books. So, you know, if, if you were to properly account, audit and account for uh, the true cost of a lot of the extractive and exploitive industries, those endeavours would be bankrupt. So incidents like Yukon Gorge and Oak Flats and the litany of other offences against the cultural and spiritual integrity of our lands needs to stop. The report never again should actually mean never again. It should not mean never again until the next time. And sadly, we seem to be heading into the next time. Wrapping all that up in the full context of where we are, so I've just recently taken on the role as uh, chair of the National Native Title Council. We support uh, and lobby and act on behalf of prescribed body corporates who are the traditional owners of uh, lands across Australia. These are really the uh, forums in which a lot of these uh, conversations, relationships need to be nested. There are a number of PBCs at the moment who are engaging in renewable energy production projects, um, solar power, delivering power to the extractors and the exploiters, the mining industry. Um, unfortunately, we have these big challenges. And the challenges are PBCs don't get adequately resourced or funded by the federal government. We have a huge and major responsibility to play on land. We need adequate resourcing. The other big ticket item, of course, is free prior and, and informed consent and the capacity of traditional owners, First Nations peoples on lands to have that say over what activities occur on our lands, how those activities occur, and also to put in place the protections so that if you do do the exploitation or the extraction in particular, if you do the extraction, you do it in a way that we are comfortable with, that we also support because we do know how to take resources from the land in a sustainable manner that then contributes to the empowerment of our people, the environment and our culture.
ne babu babu gari we don't have our land to our ancestors we will actually return back you know our lands will be returned back to us one day um our bubble which is our land and and our um sciences and our knowledges will come back to us you know once we uh, are recognized in this in sciences and also in the constitution so that's you've been listening to the climate action show at radio 3cr and radio skid row I'd like to thank our guests tonight, um, Brittany App in California. You can see her film, Once There Was Water, at the Transitions Film Festival. It's online and all the films are available wherever you are in Australia. Then to Bruce Shillingsworth, who spoke at the Requiem Art Event in Paddington Reservoir and then later to me at Politics in the Pub where I caught up with him to add depth to what he had said in that very echoing reservoir. Thank you also to Cado Muir, who spoke at another Sustainable Living Festival event called Reset 21 Forums. For production tonight, thank you to Andy, who really helped me this time with a very technical tutorial he gave me over the phone, and also to Michaela and Raoul, who helped put this show on air. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. What are we flying to Mars and we can't provide clean running water to all of the humans on this planet? Yeah. It's crazy. Mr. Speaker, I think the first and most important point to make is that this is a declaration based on science. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the preeminent scientific body in the world on this matter, has determined that in order to avoid 
A situation, a disastrous 1.5 degree Celsius rise in global temperatures and beyond, a rise that would see increased risk to human health and livelihoods, civil unrest, mass drought, mass disease, loss of lands and homes, increased fires, increased tropical storms, mass human displacement and globally exhausted resources, then we must act with urgency, Mr Speaker, to ensure global emissions fall to net zero by 2050. It means consigning our region to a devastating reality that if we are responsible members of the Pacific, we cannot and will not accept. Mr Speaker, this declaration is an acknowledgement of the next generation, an acknowledgement of the burden that they will carry if we do not get this right and if we do not take action now.